Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello, and coming up on the podcast, Inspector Max Waddell, Organized Crime Unit, Winnipeg Police Service. We're going to talk about the meth crisis with him. Chris Adams is a political scientist at the University of Manitoba. We're going to talk some provincial politics with Chris. And Henry Banman grows big pumpkins. He'll be at the Rolling Pumpkin Fair on the weekend. All that and much more on the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please rate this podcast. And now, the podcast. In the back of an ambulance with a 30-something man who's been drinking and on a meth-fueled high since Wednesday. I feel like I neglected myself completely. It's a Friday night on McPhillips. I on meth. I haven't gotten any rest. That is Richard Cluche, and Richard joins us in studio now, along with a special guest I'll introduce in a moment. But first of all, that was a Friday, and this guy had been on a meth high since Wednesday, right, Rich? 48 hours running, and uh, he was, at the time that I met him, exhausted. Hmm. But calm, but agitated. Yeah. And it was safe for me to be in the back of the ambulance with him. That's not the case with all the calls. Yeah. Inspector Max Waddell is here, Organized Crime Unit. Nice to meet you, Inspector. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Um, So agitated but calm, uh, your officers aren't always dealing with agitated but calm uh, people uh, on a meth high. You are often, we had one mother on today talking about her daughter, your officers, finding her daughter at the top of a building naked. I mean, some of the stories we're hearing about this meth crisis, and I'm now convinced more than ever that it is a crisis, I think. Do you call it a crisis? I would support that uh, notion for sure, Hal. Uh, you know, the challenge is that all frontline uh, whether your enforcement and or medical professionals are facing today uh, have changed dramatically in the last two years. And uh, Rich, I'll give you a question in a moment. You and I were chatting off here, off air here. I said, can we arrest our way out of this? And you say? We're not going to be able to arrest our way out of this problem. Rich? And just following up on that is that you need spaces uh, for people to recover. We've had the Addictions Foundation in the days and ahead, you're going to hear about the challenges and the pressures on the system and the need for the politicians to act. And I'm not going to put the inspector in that position at this point, Mm -hmm. but, you know, as part of the response, there's not a whole lot of proactivity, proactive policing going on in this case. You'd like to be able to have a lot more prevention in place through education and a, a whole lot more resources to deal with that. But they're having to answer the 911 calls. And Inspector, um, in talking with fire and paramedics and your colleagues at the police service, often what happens is that before the firefighters or the paramedics can go into a call, they're asking for help from you people because they don't feel safe. They feel that they're, they're, they're at risk. And that's happening often. Well, that's a real life scenario. And, you know, unfortunately, with methamphetamine, the effects that it causes on people puts them in what we call a state of psychosis, which really is a state of being that they are no longer in control of their own uh, actions and, unfortunately, often becomes very aggressive and violent behavior. The best way I can describe someone who is high on methamphetamine is, is unpredictable. And as a police officer, we're trained to control 
situations. When the situation is uncontrollable, unfortunately, sometimes we have to resort to certain tactics of use of force and unfortunately even lethal force on occasion. And it just puts us in a very difficult position. Uh, You're with the organized crime unit. How involved is organized crime in this? Because I get the sense this is really fast moving and it doesn't need to be that stereotypical uh, you know, uh, organized criminal, whatever, you know, biker or whatever you want. Anybody can be involved in this crisis, obviously addicted to meth, but selling it. And that must be so hard for you guys and gals to nail down. The, the front end of the meth distribution that we see in Manitoba is coming from primarily, we believe, the Mexican drug cartels. And from there, it comes up to port cities such as Vancouver and then moves its way west into provinces like Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Now, you hit on a very good point is is the fact that the cost of methamphetamine has come down dramatically in the last year, year and a half. It allows an independent individual basically to get into what I would call the game, the game of selling illicit drugs. Uh, From there, they have their own networks, they have their own friends. Uh, When they make connections, uh, you know, the addictive properties that come along with meth just drives that addictive cycle, and it's just just supporting the cause of having to sell uh, how they're selling these different drugs. Inspector, a lot of us get our cues from popular culture, and right away the analogy is Breaking Bad. Is there any elements of Breaking Bad to this as far as cartels, organized crime, those types of things? Because part of that pop culture image is, you know, somebody in a trailer cooking it up. What's myth? What's truth in all this? Well, what you see in Breaking Bad about the production, there's no doubt that's what you probably see in what we refer to as super labs, whether they're out in uh, the southern states, Mexico, or, or out west. Uh, I can say from a police perspective here in Winnipeg, we're not seeing those labs. Uh, we've seen remnants of of individuals trying to cook it on a small scale, but it's a very dangerous procedure. You have to be very skilled at what you're doing. Uh, it can be explosive. I know from a frontline officer going back years, there was uh, a couple of individuals that attempted to cook it and they actually blew the fridge off of the door, uh, the door off the fridge, pardon me, in a kitchen because that's how explosive it was on the on the stove. So you have to be very careful with this. And it's just simpler for people to buy it rather than make it. And it's simple to say that the cartels have protected the way they distribute it as well. Although there are some people getting into the business, the business of organized crime is to stay organized and to stay in that business. And that's what we see from time to time with the violence in our city streets. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a reason they call it organized crime because it is organized at a very high degree. Uh, They have their networks established and uh, they are very well protected. I was watching on CNN the other night, the Lisa Ling show, Uh, This is life, I think it's called. And she was in Oklahoma. And apparently in the States, they call it sort of the the meth crossroads because there's a couple of real big highways and they meet there. And this is, you know, comes in from Mexico, as you said, and then makes its its way up here. And I mean, seeing some of these people that are addicted to meth and struggling with it and how it can ruin families. We had uh, a mother and a son on today talking about somebody who's, uh, dealing with this, started with opioids and now is uh, on meth. It has to be heartbreaking for your officers to see this happening too. I mean, we talk about the crime and all that other stuff, but I mean, this is this is ruining families in our community. Well, I'm sure you've all here heard our our chief, Chief Smythe, say before that 
probably a week doesn't go by where there's not a family member asking him, can you please arrest my son or daughter, put them in jail so they can get the proper help that they need, separate them exclusively from the drug so that they can get the proper medical help and, and hopefully get them out of this addictive cycle. And is that part, like, I know we want more treatment and prevention and we talk about all that stuff and we can't arrest our way out of it, but is that maybe a piece of the puzzle here that these people, maybe the best place for them is in jail? Well, the Winnipeg Police Service employs an illicit drug strategy that's built on three components and it's about enforcement action, obviously, but most importantly, it's about intervention and education. And without those two other components, which really does not fall under our responsibility to a certain degree, it's going to be lost. And uh, we know the health system's overwhelmed right now, uh, but we're going to have to make inroads and changes to help support these families uh, in getting them off these uh, addictive cycles. Rich has got his, uh, sorry, Rich, you've got your own show to, to build today. So I'll let you do that. Final question. We'll take a break and I'll carry on. Well, two things. Uh, first of all, how inexpensive is it? I've got a hundred bucks in my pocket. How much meth can I buy with that? And the second one, and you may want to talk about this after the break, Hal, is zero in on crime because a lot of people are saying, ah, you know, it's not me. It's not my family, but it does affect a lot of people through break-ins and through everything else. And that's a huge component of this story. But how much can I buy for a hundred bucks? Well, two years ago, a kilo of methamphetamine was in around $60,000. That price has dropped down to about $17,000. So to answer your question specifically about the $100, uh, I could buy uh, a gram of that. But then you have to take that gram and you break it down into points. So a point of a gram is 0.10, and that's what's selling on the street for about $10. Now, that $10 is going to give you anywhere from about a 12 to 15-hour high. Wow. So you can appreciate for 10 bucks. You're high. Compare that to crack cocaine or cocaine where you're on a high for about 45 minutes to an hour. You know, you, you just can't compare the two. And the addictive properties that come with meth compared to cocaine and that, you you can't compare them. Just one quick example. They, they use the analogy, we all like to eat a hamburger or fast food. Now, dopamine is released in the body, that good, that feel-good hormone. Well, they measure a hamburger at about 100 units. When you take methamphetamine, they measure that at about 1,200 units. Hmm. So that puts that into perspective about how highly addictive this drug truly is. Chris Adams is a political scientist at the University of Manitoba, and he joins us on the phone now. Hi, Chris. Hi, Hal. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I had a thought this morning as I woke to the news that the CAQ is now running the province of Quebec, and I thought, man, where did this party come from? And they have done it so quickly. And then I thought about the Manitoba party, now led by Stephen Fletcher. And so I thought Mm -hmm. this might make for an interesting conversation. Could a party like the Manitoba Party, now led by Stephen Fletcher, make a move in this province? Or are we sort of, you know, still Tory, NDP, and a bit liberal? Well, one thing, Hal, is, is regarding Quebec, the the, CO, the CAQ uh, really filled in a void. We, we've seen the Liberal Party for, for pretty well much of 15 years leading, uh, being in power. So it was really, I think, many voters looking for an alternative. And in this election, it was the first time probably since the early 70s that we saw voters making a vote uh, without the issue of separatism on their mind. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a different constellation of 
issues going on during this campaign. Um, if we look over at Manitoba, I, I think that you have to think, okay, um, the Manitoba party, where is it coming from? They, they, they don't have a seat other than Stephen Fletcher, who's just moved in as an independent and taken over the helm of the Manitoba party. They really aren't showing up on, on the polls that we've seen over the past number of years. I, I know in the last election, they had just 1% of the vote uh, in Manitoba with a spread of across 16 candidates. So I, it, it's a very different scenario for the Manitoba party than, than, uh, than the, the, the new winners in the Quebec election. Well, and then we see Bernier federally, you know, we see some stuff in Alberta with some different parties that we're not used to seeing. I just wonder, and I mean, certainly in the past, we've seen stuff like the Reform Party, and maybe this goes through, you know, phases. I don't know. It seems like we're in a phase right now in politics where voters are open to looking at those parties that maybe uh, don't have that traditional history. Just seems like that to me. I don't know. Yeah, I was just talking before this interview with my my colleague, Kevin McDougald. He does a podcast, and we were comparing this, and we were thinking, you know, someone like a... um when you look at the Reform Party, there was a real groundswell of of, uh, of anger over the federal cons- progressive conservatives and and the, the people on the on the center right who were regionally minded had no place to park their vote except with a new party, mm-hmm. and uh, and so Preston Manning uh, Preston Manning really rode a wave in the in the early nineties, and um, whereas Maxime Bernier he he doesn't seem to be riding a wave there, when when you see him at a micro Phone, you don't see a number of notables standing around him, so so I I, I really don't see much much uh, um, much of a future for his party. And now I might be wrong, but I think it's more similar to like the Reconstruction Party. If anybody wants to Google that, um, the other thing too is is in Alberta that there was the Wild Rose Party, and I think that would be the the one party for the Manitoba Party folks to look at. That mm-hmm. is a a party that can outflank the the governing conservatives or progressive conservatives in a way to draw off um, a vote into the Wild Rose. So essentially what the Wild Rose Party was trying to do was to sort of take over the conservative vote in the province. Manitoba right now, Hal, uh, you look at the, the polling numbers um, uh, from, from probe research and, and over the past year, and, and you know, the, the, the PCs are doing fairly well in the polls, and there's no, there's no sense of groundswell of anger among those who are um, on the right or the center right against what Brian Pallister is doing or his, his government. Yeah, and I agree. I think Pallister and his Tories have done a really good job. They've positioned themselves nicely, I think, and they have done a great job. Politically, they've done a great job of really uh, hammering the NDP led by Wab Canoe. Like they've got a long way to go to get back in this and, and make it a race. Yeah. Well, well, I think uh, one of their successes has been a financial constraint, and uh, they seem to be uh, addressing the the deficit. You know, there was a recent debate between the Auditor General and and the uh, Minister of Finance for the province. But uh, leaving that aside, the there really has been progress by the province in in reducing the deficit. Um, the, the one thing that we'll, we will have to watch for, Hal, is is what happens with the PST. I think there are a lot of people who are looking to see will that 
that actually be reduced as promised? And, mm. I, and if it's not reduced, I think we, we might see something from the Manitoba party. But really, there's very little for that party to pick up traction right now. Uh, one of the big issues for, for them over the last uh, number of years has been radar, photo radar. Well, that, that's really hardly a, an issue to, 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 hang a, uh, to get a government change yeah. over. One more thought here, and then I'll let you go, Chris. But sure. I, uh, I was thinking about the Liberals and Dougal Lamont. I really yeah. thought when he won in St. Boniface and he got the leadership and then he won in St. Boniface, I thought we might start hearing something from him and the Liberals. And it's been pretty quiet on that front. It has been, and I think in part the civic election being on, I think we're only a month into the autumn, and so the summer was kind of a quiet time. Yeah. But but he he has been it has been a fairly quiet period. Also, the 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 assembly has not been in in full action. So so I think once the assembly's in full action, we'll start seeing the reporters covering what he has to say. And but that's true. He's got to start marshalling his resources for the next election, and now they're an official party. They're in a position as four seats in the Assembly to do that. I lied. One more question. Um, What do you think of this uh, uh, stadium deal and and writing off $200 million? Um, That does not look good on on the NDP. I guess that goes to a question I asked you earlier, but that, even even Wab Canoe, the current NDP leader, called it a dud, I believe, so... Well, there are there are some issues that that continue to percolate from the previous administration, mm-hmm. but I have to be transparent. I, I run a college at the U of M, right next door to the stadium. Right. So, <laughs> be hesitant. A little to make tough, a yeah. Let's talk pumpkins right now. I saw this today. There is a new pumpkin champ in the state of New York. Take a listen. During the annual World Pumpkin Weigh-Off, this pumpkin weighed in at a whopping 2,027 pounds. That's very, very heavy. She's not wrong. That weight beat last year's state record of 1,971 pounds, giving Carl Hayes of Clarence a $3,500 cash prize. So... I wanted to know, what's it take to grow a pumpkin this big? A lot of water, a lot of time, and uh, some good heat and some good sunlight. So these are pumpkins I see. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering if it would make the state's largest pumpkin pie, too. Actually, you can't turn these into pumpkin pie. They, uh, they don't, they're not like sugar pumpkins. Um, it'll be compost for next year. All right, so that's what happened in New York. 2,027 pounds. First place, state champ, the grower gets 3500 bucks. And listen, there are uh, these pumpkin growing contests all over the place. The one in Manitoba, though, that really matters is the Roland Pumpkin Fair. And it is coming up on Saturday. And so I tracked down one of the big pumpkin growers here in the province of Manitoba, Henry Banman, who joins us on the phone now. Hello, Henry. Yes. Just wondering what the pumpkin growing season has been like. Are we growing some big ones here? Oh, yeah, we are. We have uh, quite a few big ones uh, this year. It will be interesting. Are you going to have one in the Roland Fair? Uh, Yes. Is it going to be a champ? I'm hoping. It measures in pretty good right now. I'm kind of hoping I'll beat the record from last year, but uh, it's one of those that you have to wait until it's on the scale. Right. What was the record last year, by the way? 
Mine would have been 1474. And so you were the champ last year? Uh, for Manitoba, yes. Uh, but there was one U.S. person that came in, and he, uh, what was it correctly, 24 pounds heavier than me, and so he beat the Roland uh, Fair last year. And you think this year's might be bigger? I think so. I think uh, there's a lot of big ones that I know of uh, from Winnipeg, from uh, Carmen. Uh, uh, my brother, he has a nice one too, so I'm thinking uh, it will be pretty interesting. Why do we grow them so big around here? <laughs> that's, the, that's the key. Everybody wants to have the biggest one. But are the growing conditions here better, or, or why is it we grow so many big ones? Oh, I don't know. This year was an excellent year for the uh, weather-wise. As long as you have water, then uh, it doesn't matter if it rains or not. But uh, I think this year was uh, because of the weather. Because it was dry? No, no, it was uh, warmer, I think. We had more nights where it was warm, and that helps a lot. And if somebody here in Winnipeg wanted to grow a big pumpkin in their garden or in their backyard, what would be your best bit of advice? Uh... Pretty much the same uh, water and a shelter. Uh, the more shelter you have, the more heat waves you get. All right, Henry. Well, good luck on Saturday. Okay, thanks. Henry Bandman, he will have a pumpkin in the Roland Pumpkin Fair Saturday, and it might be a champ. But I was surprised. I thought we had really big pumpkins here. But when you look at the champ in New York and last year's champ here, even if it's the one uh, that Henry had or or the one that was 24 pounds heavier from the States that actually, I guess, uh, took the overall championship in Roland last year. The one in New York's about 500 pounds bigger. Like, I know the ones we grow here are huge. Like, I've seen pictures. Go online and look. That Roland Pumpkin Fair's got a website. Go and check it out. But to think that the one in New York is 500 pounds bigger and then the world champ, the biggest one ever grown in the world, is another five or 600 pounds on top of that, 25 or 2,600 pounds. Like, that's crazy. Crazy. Anyhow, if you're looking for something to do on Saturday, maybe head out to the Rolling Pumpkin Fair. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.